0: The title of my message, and the message that's on my heart, and it's about our childness, is what only a child can know. Only a child has the perspective to answer this critical question correctly, and that is, who is God? And uh, I would say that there were a lot of good answers, correct answers, on you guys. But I wanted to look at what the definition is. So this is just from a Google define God dictionary search, okay? What is God? Now listen to this. In Christianity and other monotheistic cultures, it's a noun, there's a couple of definitions. Uh, In Christianity and other monotheistic cultures, the creator and ruler of the universe and the source of all moral authority, the supreme being. All right, so how many of you can understand that definition? Okay. Here's the second one. In certain other religions, the definition of God is a superhuman being or spirit worshipped as having power over nature and human fortunes. A deity. And an example would be a moon god. So you can tell that the dictionary tried to talk about Christianity and monotheistic religions and tried to talk about other religions. The other interesting thing about this definition is this next point. Those are both nouns. There are no verb definitions of God in this version of the dictionary. So, God's not used very much like a gerund, or it's not used like a verb. It's just a noun. Um, So, the mic's open, and you guys can unmute and say if you got a comment. What is the implication of that definition of God? And, And do you know people that would say that is kind of their primary definition? now we've harped on it some in here thank god and there's a lot of definitions about fatherhood and a lot of definitions that are trinitarian and that would be that would be strange if i talked about it as much as i think i have and none of us thought that way but i know a number of christian people who love god but they they would they would fundamentally agree with the first definition do you Think so? Okay. Uh, I know some Christians, unfortunately, that would kind of agree with the second definition, even though they wouldn't want it attributed to a pagan uh, or or other kind of thing, but uh, he's worshipped as having power over nature and human forces. The implications of this definition touch our lives. And I also think the implications of this definition reveal a scheme to distract us from who God actually is, which most of you have touched on in your definitions. So here's the definition out of the same dictionary of Father. Go ahead, Richard. I would also Oops, read the there. there. There it, is. it would also bring up dualism. Yes, it would. It would, because, because it's kind of the holy other. And there's theological stuff that, like, that is not, that's not a, a, a definition foreign to Christian theology at all. Especially the idea of the source of all moral authority. He's the source of the good. I mean, and even good theologians, I'm, I'm talking lots of good theologians, they, they deal with that. That's kind of the definition. He defines what the good is. He defines the moral thing. It's where holiness comes from. God is the is the standard of holiness. Okay? Defining dualism is the assumption that at the base of reality are two relatively equal uh, but opposing forces. And it can manifest in good and evil playing out. It can manifest in the concept of of that life basically consists of a war between good and evil or a war between God and the devil and we're pawns in the middle. Uh, it can also manifest in a more sophisticated way in religions that have things like yin and yang or uh, that type of thing. But dualism basically means there are two more or less uh, equal and competing forces. And it allows for one to be stronger than the other and all that kind of stuff. But God would be contrasted against something else there, like the devil. Okay, this... So, yes. Larry? Oh, hey, hey, buddy. Do you, are you asking us to give our... Imp- yeah, if you the have one. Yeah, the implications of that definition there to me seem like God is not present now. He's not active now. He kind of started things and left it alone. This definition would fit a God that was uh, understood in a deist Theology, because that's what he would be. He would be the guy that started it, and and yeah, there is a lot. There's a lot like that. Uh, a lot of times, people would also throw in there that since he is the source of moral authority, he is also going to be the judge of moral failure, and so that'll bring him back into that deistic universe or dualistic universe at the end. But that, that, that the absence of, of presence is something you sense in there. Okay, yes. yeah, any other Zoomers got any thoughts? And like I say, I didn't edit this or anything, I just pulled it out of the dictionary. Okay, let's go to the definition of father, and I appreciate it that so many of you listed father. So father uh, is also a noun, and, but you'll notice that it has a whole bunch of different uh, attributions attached to it, so don't let that confuse you. But it, So here are some noun definitions of father. The first one, this is verbatim, and I even used their descriptors. I probably wouldn't have written that kind of a descriptor, but it illustrates the way the word's used. A man in relation to his child or children. Okay? And then they used, in a sentence illustration, Margaret's father uh, died at an early age, and that's how the father was associated with Margaret. That's why he's her father. Does that make sense? A man in relation... To his child or children. And again, I didn't make these definitions up. This is just what you type in when you say define father in Google. A male animal in relationship to his offspring. So it's same basic definition, but it just talks about that thing. So what's the common point between these two things? The relationship. So a father, the word father, the noun father, is intr- intrinsic in that, is a relationship with his offspring. All right, now those of you that are quick fingers are going to know, oh, I see where Larry uh, going on that one, because our childness comes from our Father, and our childness is a manifestation of His fatherhood on this earth. But it's even better than that. Here's another definition. An important figure in the origin and early history of something. Like, uh, the sentence they used is Dorsey should be remembered as the father of gospel music, but that was an interesting thing. But, um, an important figure in the origin and early history of something. So father is not only just in relationship to an offspring. Father also is the, is the source of the creation or inspiration of something, even if it's beyond just one generation back. That's why it's not un, uh, Ununderstandable when we say something like Father Abraham. Because he, you know, in his seed, there is that relationship that moves forward. Uh, Fourth definition, still in the noun category. A man who gives care and protection to someone or something. Isn't that a sweet definition of Father? Gives care and protection. Let me go back for a little bit the creator and ruler of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. That definition is missing something that the father definition has. And when it establishes a relationship, it's a relationship as having power over nature or human fortunes. So back to the father definitions. A man in relationship to his child or children a male animal in relationship to its offspring, an important figure in the origin and early history of something, but then this beautiful one, a man who cares or gives care and protection to something or someone. You can qualify as a father by providing care. The oldest or most respected member of a society or other body Right? And this is where you start getting in the idea of a father, the father of the church, or something along those lines. In Christian belief, the first person of the Trinity, God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I don't know if you guys think that's cool, but I thought it was very interesting. Because the the uh, fundamental, as you pointed out, Ronnie, the relationship of that, or, or the definition of God in that dictionary sense didn't carry with it a relational imperative. It carried with it an authority imperative and a creation imperative. Make sense? Now, the interesting point that I want want you to take note of is that there were no verb uses of the word God. But there are all kinds of verbs that are, that are used as gerunds and other things as the word father. Look at them. They're really pretty amazing. Of a man, so this is a verb definition of this word, of a man that causes a pregnancy resulting in the birth of a child. Now, this got me all excited because of what I felt like I learned recently about about what John talked about as the primary gift of the incarnation. The primary gift of the incarnation is the power or the ability to be birthed as a child. And Jesus emphasized it to Nicodemus, and he said, unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom. You won't even enter the kingdom. And the product of a birth is a child. And again, I did add the colored highlights, but that's the definition in the dictionary online. The second one, this is another one that's amazing to me. This goes along a little bit, but like the father that provides protection. Uh, to treat with the protective care associated with the Father. To extend yourself, to provide, to protect, to, to do that, to to treat. Um, I remember John Eldridge in his book, Fathered by God. He used that word in that way. And it was a kind of life-transforming book for me you know, years ago when I read it. Because he had that, that prayer thing in the end, St. Patrick's breastplate prayer and a bunch of stuff like that. Start praying that every day. And the opposite, Ronnie, of, uh, like in these two, especially this definition here, it's the opposite of the distant non presence. It's actually being there to engage with us, to wrap, wrap protection and comfort around us. To be the source or the originator. And they use this illustration, which I thought was interesting. A culture which has fathered half the popular music in the world. Uh, so the idea of, the, the past tense of has fathered, has fathered. Uh, I think about where it says in Ephesians that uh, he is the father from whom every family on heaven and earth gets its name. It's this part of that word. So what does it mean that that there are verb definitions of the word father? And if we are contrasting that against the word God, that there are no verb definitions. Of that. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the last one is an interesting one to me. I, I've never used it this way. But uh, it's, it's to assign the responsibility of a child or for a book or an idea or an action to somebody. And they use this illustration. A collection of Irish stories was fathered on him. And so I don't know whether somebody, some Irish guy told a bunch of stories and then they were collected into a book and, and it was attributed to him as a father or whether it was a responsibility that was put upon him. But nevertheless, there's four verb definitions. All of them carry a relatively powerful, interactive sense of something. Okay? Now, I want you to think about the difference between your images. Now, this might be a bit of a moot question in here because so many of you thought about and wrote down, Father. But when you talk about God when people pray about God, pray to God even for that matter, when they when they, just, they they talk about God's plans and God doing this and God doing that, and then other people you listen to talk about Him as Father and talk about Him as Daddy, Abba, Papa, or something like that, to me, there is a significant difference in how we refer to that. Now, I've had this conversation with a couple of people and I don't want you to think, and I know that it's possible to do so, and I would understand it. I don't want you to think that I think it's inappropriate for us to think about God as God. Um, so it's, I don't see this as a competitive thing in that sense, but I do see it as a subordinate or a... I see it as something slightly different. Uh, that, that if we spend... If a, if a believer were to spend 100% of their time, for instance, thinking about God in the name of God, I think they would make room in their life for like the distance that Ronnie talked about. Or a sense of foreness and not withness. A sense of awareness. And, and there's a reason for that, I think. So, Jesus came to seek and reveal His Father. And that's the point I want to make to you. And I want you to think about it. Now, He did it. He revealed the Father. And I'm going to show you just a few examples. This is His gift to us. What what am I saying when I say this is His gift to us? What did Jesus give us in reference to His Father? Some would say He gave us the ability to become children. Some would say that He... Covered our sins so that we can get back in a relationship or so that we can, uh, confess our sins, say a prayer, and then be, be born again because in, it's that context that born again has been appropriated. And, uh, remember earlier I was talking to you about how a lot of people will say, at least I've dealt with them all my life, uh, it, me at one point, but not, not lately, um, that God is everybody's creator, but he's not everybody's father. But I, I think I've made a case out of Scripture, I know the Scripture's made a case to me, that that is the opposite of the truth. That God was our Father before he's our creator. And he was our Father by choice. He was our Father by his own dictates. He was our Father because the very, uh, the very the very decision, the very edict, the declaration to create, was formed as father of the word, as the father of Jesus, as the father of the son. And so, so he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world because that's when the decision was made to redeem. And it was made from a father's heart. And a father's heart would be uh, somebody who causes a pregnancy resulting in the birth of a child. I think I'm going to do that, God said. <laughs> I think I'm going to do that. You want to help me, son? Sure. And if you start thinking about what John talks about as the Logos, it's that whole Logos is the conception of this. That is the plan. There's really nothing that we can know about God apart from what's been revealed in Jesus. And everything that's been revealed in Jesus about God is about Father. So, let me do the last line on this and then go back to the second line. When we neglect our identity as children, when we neglect our identity as children, is it possible that we neglect our identity with children? I think we all agree that that's possible. We can we can skip over that part where Jesus says, unless you're converted and becomes a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom. We can, because of theological training or just the way we think about it, or people have talked to us. I've talked to a lot of people in the last month and a half that have told me I've never associated what it says about being born again in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 with a child. But obviously, now that you've mentioned it, the point of a birth, a new birth, is that a child is born. And so, you know, there's a lot... I don't have all the answers about how to think about that, but I know a lot of people have done it. So I do think it's possible for us to neglect our identity as a child. I think it's possible also for us to do so because we are deceived into thinking that there's more horsepower in being an adult than there is in being a child. And a lot of that is because most of the teaching that I've heard about child-likeness is very quick to jump in and try to distinguish between that and childishness. But I'm still committed to breaking that habit in my thinking because I think that childishness does less damage to the kingdom and less damage to spiritual life and less damage to the release of the blessing that Jesus came to give i think childishness is less damaging to that than childlessness where we're not acting as a child that we don't think as a child we always look for solutions as an adult because well i just think that and we'll see if that's true as we keep moving forward so when we neglect our identity as children we make room in our lives for a perspective that I believe is designed to substitute a knowledge of God for knowing our Father. And Jesus proves that dealing with the Pharisees. In John 5, for instance, he says, You have never seen my Father's form, nor heard his voice. He says, But you search the Scripture, thinking, in me find life, and there that would speak of me, but you won't come to me and receive life. And then he was so emphatic, not just with the people that resisted him, but with the people that loved him. He said, Philip, have I been with you so long, and still you don't know that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so that's why I want to point out to you tonight something you can mull over, and that is what I think is a reality, that Jesus, more than he came to do anything, he came to reveal the Father, and to reawaken us, his children, to who he is. And the fruit of receiving him is being given the power to become a child. Not to become a child in the original sense of conception, but to become the child that you are that you don't know. To become the child that you are that you neglect. To become the child that you are that you're unaware of. The Pharisees, God was their father, and Jesus acknowledged that even after he talked to them about their father being the devil. Abraham was their father. In that lineage, but he said you don't you don't follow Abraham because Abraham longed for my day and rejoiced and he saw it. so there's something to be seen or to be received in Jesus, and I do think receiving is interesting. John said that that uh, as many he came unto his own. that's another reason I believe that it's legitimate for us to realize that God is the father of everybody. Because they're his own. And and we belong to Jesus. Now, we might belong to Jesus by virtue of he's the one that uh, created everything and everything was made. And so there's plenty of room for some good theological debate in this situation. And I don't pretend to have all the answers. But what I do believe is that I'm facing now the right direction in recognizing the fatherhood of God extending to everybody and my childness being a, a genuine part of the conception of me and us in the beginning of the world, before the beginning of the world. When were we conceived? What does conceived even mean? It's interesting to me that it even in our English language, it has a double meaning. It has the meaning of when a, a, a sperm and an egg come together and life is formed. And people fight against that and try to deny it, but it's true. Everybody knows it's true. Everybody knows it's true. That's when life starts. You leave it alone, and it turns into an ugly little kid or something. Everybody knows it's true but conceived also is when an idea forms as a spark in our imagination and mind. And we're made in the image and likeness of God. And so it doesn't, it, it doesn't stretch any understanding of life to realize that in the heart of God, before anything was created, humanity was conceived. And it says, conceived in Christ. And it even says, predestined to be adopted in Christ predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. So there's a lot of thinking that went on before the first let there be light was ever said, before the Spirit hovered over any kind of chaos, before the sea gave up the uh, life that was in it, before the plants, you know, all of that. In other words, the world was made based upon who we were conceived to be. It was made for us. And that's why it's waiting for our glory, not our glory as priests and kings necessarily. Now what it says. I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm saying it's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says in Romans eight is that it's waiting for the glory of the children of God, because that's what God's looking at and waiting for is our conformity to the image of Christ, our growing up and being is or waking up and then growing up being His sons. So yes, I, I want to go back to though. Because this is an important point, and I don't know if this is the time to try to make it, but I'll have to share with you a little bit out of my journal. So this is his gift, but what is that gift exactly? Is the gift the ability for us to step into a father-child relationship that we either were unable to have or didn't know we could have, but now we independently have it with The God, the supreme being, the creator who also is our father. that That is one way of understanding it. And I think that's the way that most of us understand it. I believe that is an incorrect understanding. And I'm certainly coming to believe that more and more. I believe that that understanding minimizes one of the most important concepts and revelations in the scriptures and the thing that that idea of jesus somehow creating an opportunity where now i can step into the the birthing becoming the child of my father there um i believe that misses the concept of being in christ i i i think i would like to get us to think uh, ask the lord ask the holy spirit Holy Spirit, do I think about being a child of God as a result of a good work that Jesus did, but somehow independent of being unified and completely in Him? And if if there's a chance the answer is yes, then just give it some time and and ask the Holy Spirit to talk to you about it. So, I think the gift is that He gave us His relationship with the Father. Jesus came down and he brought with him the most fundamental thing he brought with him. He brought the authority of being the creator of all, so he was coming to his own in that capacity. But he brought with us his union with his daddy, which was and is the union from which every and all of humanity was conceived and everything was designed and created. It was out of that union between the Father and the Son, the dynamic. Jesus brought that to earth. He brought it into humanity. And the thing resisting that was, of course, our brokenness and our sin and our blindness that came as a result of that, the darkness. But I believe that the gift that Jesus brought us is his own relationship with his Father. And if you think about it, there are scriptures that speak very directly to that. If uh, the Son of Man, if I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, I will drag all into me. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Is it only in a contractual sense? Or is it literally that he has opened up to humanity? In us being drawn to him and us dying with him and being raised with him, he's opened up his relationship with his father an invitation into the middle of that dynamic, which is our God, the Triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, let's see. <clears throat> I don't know if I can persuade you out of the scriptures I've selected tonight, but I can, I think, show you that the singular focus of Jesus from the beginning of His ministry to the very end of His ministry was the Father. Okay. This is in uh, John chapter, I mean, uh, Luke chapter 40. These, uh, this is an account of the, f- as best as I can find them in scripture, of the first words of Jesus that are recorded. Um, so, let me start reading. And the little child grew and became strong, being filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And each year, this is in Luke chapter 2. And in each year at the feast of the Passover, his parents journeyed to Jerusalem. And when the, he had reached 12 years of age, they went up for the feast as they were accustomed to do. So now we're going to get into the narrative. And you all know the story where Jesus gets there and he starts talking with the, with the guys and responding and so on. And so verse 43 says, and having finished their days there as they were on their way back, the boy Jesus remained in Jerusalem. And notice it changed here from little child to boy because he's now 12 years old. Uh, remained in Jerusalem and his parents were unaware Now, I cut some out so it fit on the screen, but let me read that. So, um, and his parents were unaware he had done so. Rather, assuming him to be in the traveling party, they went on their way for a day, then sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. And not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it happened that after three days, they found him. And that's important because in just a moment, his mom is going to say something and we all should have mercy on her. (laughs) Uh, even though Jesus didn't, actually. Uh, And not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amid the teachers, both listening to them and posing them questions. And those listening to him were astonished at his intelligence and at his responses. And seeing him, they were struck with wonder. And his mother said, and that's where I took it up here, his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us thus? Look, your father and I are in horrible distress seeking you. And he said to them, this is Jesus' first recorded words. He said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that it is necessary for me to be in the home of my father? Now, I'm sure as Jesus was a little kid, he grew up in, had conversations with his dad about carpentry and went for walks and thought about the fish that one day he was going to direct Peter to pull one. You know, I don't know. I don't know how he thought. But what I know is that the Holy Spirit superintended the records of Jesus' very first words were to reveal a focus and a cognizance of his Father. Now, this means a lot to me. It's like seriously sort of encouraging to me. What was Jesus here for? And my gosh, I have spent so many sermons throughout my life and so much teaching, pulling a little scripture here. He's here to overcome the work of the devil. Pulling a little scripture from here, a little scripture from there. I never looked at this. The first person I ever heard talk about this was Bill Johnson about five years ago. And Bill said, fundamentally, Jesus came to reveal his father. And he did a little short teaching. I was really good. And I go, well, yeah, that's true. It makes sense. But now I understand that it's more than just his primary focus in that kind of a sense. This is where it all started. And I could go through a bunch of other startup scriptures. Like the first words recorded about Jesus uh, in, uh, in, in the situation where he came to Jordan to be baptized was from the Father about his son. This relationship is central to the incarnation. It is central to who Jesus is and why he, he came into the in into humanity. Interestingly enough, it finishes with, and they did not understand what he had said. It wasn't that hard to understand. Why were you seeking me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in the home of my father? Next one. In the last words of his natural life, the very last words, and I'm just so envision these as just two big parentheses, because there's all kinds of other stuff in there. I mean, you remember that... that? Uh, uh, oh, I just told you about the one in John 5 where you've never seen my father's form or heard his voice. Uh, what about the amazing words? It's not just John either, the Gospel of John, but John's full of it, uh, full of the references to Jesus and his father. Uh, it's, how about Matthew? I think it's 11, uh, eleven seventeen, where it says, Father, uh, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And I heard Baxter Kruger one time put that in the best little encapsulated form I know. He said, That is a pretty exclusive club. Only the Father knows the Son. Well, what? Don't I know the Son? Only the Son knows the Father. Don't we know God? Don't we know the. And those that Jesus reveals them to. If you go to the first part of the Gospel of John, it talks about Him coming in the Incarnation. And it says, no man has seen God, but the Son, He has explained Him. He has explained Him. Um, Oh, sorry, I didn't explain this. So, the last words of His natural life, after He said, it is completed, or it is finished, is, Father, into your hands. Now, everybody makes a huge deal out of the first statement on the cross which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting out of Psalms 22. But the last words revealed that the focus was not broken by the events of the cross. He knew where he was going. If you back up into a little bit before the cross scene in John chapter 13, it's a beautiful passage of Scripture, and it says, uh, Jesus, knowing that his time had come when he would return to the Father, Loved those in the, in the world, and he loved them till the end. Everything, this is crazy to me and it's exciting. Every reference that you find in the New Testament, and there are dozens and dozens of them, about Jesus and his father are a revelation of this relationship that spawned humanity and spawned creation and made its way into creation and into humanity, not to judge the world, the cosmos, but to save it. I didn't come to judge men, I came to save them. He brought that relationship to us, and that is what is being extended to us in His nail-scarred hands if we will receive it. His relationship, not ours. It becomes ours, but this is why This is why I think it's important to shift our thinking about this stuff. Because otherwise, otherwise, what we, what we face is the challenge, even in the very familiar terms of Father, of having to learn how to relate to the Supreme Being. (laughs) the the God and creator of everything and, and, and the moral code of the universe, the moral authority. But in a way, we don't have to learn it from scratch. We have to engage it because Jesus drug us into him because we have been united in his death and his resurrection and we have been united in his declaration just before this, which is, it is finished. Now, I, I don't know how to even make that mean what I'm certain that it means. I don't know how to talk about it. But what I'm saying, is, this isn't a thing where Jesus came down here just as a distant example of what it would be like if we really lived the way we could live. He came down here and He took us to Himself. He gathered us up to Himself. And because our birth, natural and spiritual, is a byproduct not of just some event in history in in the union of our parents, but is a byproduct of the conception of our life in humanity, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in His love before creation, all the circumstances of creation and all the circumstances of time point to the fact that you and I are engaged currently in learning to stand in and, uh, and, and experience the same life that Jesus has with His Father. And in the end of John 17, He says it exactly. I pray, Father, that they would be one as we are one so that the same love with which you loved me you can love them. will be in them. The same love. The standard of the love that is in your life from the God of the universe, the supreme being, is the love that he loves Jesus with. And the, and the honor that we get to offer back to God and the honor that he gladly receives is the love that Jesus has for him. And it's in John 14. It's in John 15. It's in John 16. It's all about it in John 17. And so, in many places, is this contrast between God and Father. Okay. So now in the timeline of Jesus' life, this is the first proclamation that he makes after the resurrection. And look at it. Saying these things, this is Mary Magdalene. She turned back around and sees Jesus standing there. And this is, you know, on Easter morning. She's at the tomb. It's open. She's distraught because she thinks they've taken him away. She sees Jesus, thinks he's the gardener. Jesus says to her, Madam, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? And she, thinking that he is the gardener, says to him, My Lord, if you have carried him off, tell me where you put him and I will take him away. And then Jesus says to her, Mary. In turning, she says to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then I don't understand this next thing. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them. Now, I don't understand what that means. You know, and I could ask the Lord and probably sit around for a couple of days and get some highlight or something. But I do understand the next thing. I understand what he says to her next. He says, go to my brothers. And tell them, I ascend to my Father and theirs. Your Father, and to my God and your God. You understand the emphasis of this first declaration? Oh, my God? Yes. My Father? Yes. Did these guys have it all right theologically? No, no. Forty days later, they're standing there saying, hey, is now the time you're going to give the kingdom back to Jerusalem? (laughs) No. It's not predicated on what we do. Our experience of it in a large part is, it's predicated on what he did when he said, it's finished. It's predicated on what he did when the grave could not hold him and corruption could not lay hold of him. And it's predicated on the reality of this declaration. Go and tell them, I am ascending. Okay, that would have been news to my father. Earlier, remember, he he warned him of that in John 14, 15. He said, you know, I say I'm going back and you're all sad, but if you knew who the father was, you'd know this was a good thing. And when I go back, I'm going to be able to send the comforter. I can't send him yet because I haven't ascended, but I'm going to. Anyhow. But do you see this parallel? Do you see the significance of this parallel? Can I, can I do anything <laughs> to make it more life-giving? Jesus, his disciples, keep in mind, were hiding. Peter was still struggling with shame. Paul later reveals that he first appeared to Peter before the rest of the disciples. So that means between when he said this and when he appeared in the room after the guys on the road to Maus, somehow he had gotten to Peter, according to Paul. And Paul said, look, I, I, they, they didn't tell me this, I got this by revelation. So, before Peter had been lovingly rescued in his heart from the bitterness that he walked away from crucifixion night with, and before doubting Thomas had his doubts overcome, and before any of that happened, Jesus made the unqualified declaration in association with the event that was the pivot point of history. Not just his death on the cross, his return to the Father. I am ascending to my Father. Now, he didn't say, my God, first. He said, my Father. But he did say, my God, because that definition of God that seems so sterile and distant, it's okay. But it's not the whole picture. It's not the whole picture. I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God to your God. In this phrase, Jesus was defining the two-part reality and relationship that humanity has with God because of him. And we've got to explore that more. We can't write this off to just a transactional thing like we punched the ticket. We have to explore it more. Okay. If that doesn't show you enough that the from the very first proclamation in the scripture about I need to be in my father's house, about my father's business, to the last thing he said after he said it is finished, Father, 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 the victory statement. That's the victory statement. Because sin tried to convince him, tried to demand that he break that relationship and he didn't and he couldn't and now he's sitting here introducing the whole of the new resurrection life and power, the victory over principalities and powers and aeons and all that kind of stuff, he's he's, he's announcing that right here in the context of my father and your father my God and your God Oh, something big there but just so you know that he has maintained his focus. The last official act that is recorded of Jesus in eternity is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Right? It's the last thing that we know record of. There's probably stuff that goes on after that, but we have no record of that in Scripture. And that, this that's being talked about, leaves whatever history may be revealed in revelation in the, in the dust, in the back. Because this is this is the day that Peter spoke about, that he must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things. Then the full completion. this is it. What is Jesus' focus? when he delivers the kingdom to him who is god supreme being and father this is why i i am comfortable with this massive shift in my own understanding and my own habit and i want you to consider being that way because if we had a record of what Jesus saw and thought about when his eyes opened up, uh, maybe he was able to distinguish the angel song and it was talking about what his father had just done by giving goodwill and hope to men. But we know for sure that the first words expressed by him at 12 years old were about his father. The last thing expressed by him on the cross was about his father. The first declaration he made was that just off the charts, amazing, powerful declaration about the equality of His relationship with His Father and our relationship with His Father and His God and our God. And then the very, very last thing He does is this. When He renders every principality and every authority and power ineffectual, for He must reign till He puts all enemies under His feet. The last enemy rendered ineffectual is death. For he subordinated all things beneath his feet. But when it says all things have been subordinated beneath his feet, it's clear that this does not include the one who subordinated all things to him. That would be the Father. And when all things have been subordinated to him, then will the Son himself also be subordinated to the one who has subordinated all things to him. Who is that? God. But Jesus knows that God as him who is a God and Father, so that God may be all in all. So, Jesus' focus all I want to say, all I'm trying to say about this particular thing is that Jesus' focus on God was the one constant from his birth to his death to his resurrection to his ruling and reigning in a culmination of the ages. Jesus came to reveal and honor the Father. Which now doesn't seem so weird theologically and cultish or something, thinking that we were conceived as humanity between the dialogue, between the the thinking of the Logos and the Father. We were conceived that And then when the decision was made, it says that he was made. Everything was made through him. And even prophetically, it's announced. Let me read this to you prophetically. i got to shut up. I'm getting too long. This is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. I I really got excited when I thought it was a part of the new covenant, and I think it is. This is even more exciting. Listen to this. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called. Listen to these names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplish this. Now I don't know who that's referring to. I could probably ask somebody in here or figure it out. Whether the Lord of hosts would be referring to Jesus, would be referring to God, or would be referring to Yahweh Elohim, which is the Father, Son, and the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. But the point is, Isaiah 9 6 and down does a sweeping embrace of this whole purpose. And it tells us that odd and mysterious thing that the child born and the son given is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here's the key for us. And this is why, this is why your, your embrace of your childness is so, so important. Because only a child will consistently be able to answer the question, who is God, properly. Otherwise, we'll drift over and substitute the rational thought of him being the source of moral goodness. He is. We'll drift over into him being the creator and sustainer of all. And he is. But those things are a subset that flow from his heart as a father and the dynamic of the relationship between the father and the son in the spirit. And think about Paul saying, you know, he who doesn't have the spirit doesn't have the life. But he you have the spirit, you have the life. What life do you have? You have the life between the father and the son. You have that life. Not some independent thing that we have to, like paupers, scratch out, or not some zero-sum balance where Jesus has a gallon of life and we all have enough, if there's eight billion people, to have one eight billionth of a drop of it. No. It is His life. And that's why if we get this, then <laughs> that's why Jesus could say something as silly in the face of how hard life is and how hard discipleship is if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to the sycamore tree, be cast up and cast into the sea. No happen. For nothing is impossible. Because Jesus could say that, and that's what he shared with us. Not us trying to imitate that. Us trying to live in that, to receive it, and to and and to realize that we're in a process. Those that, he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. But as many as did receive him, those that believe on his name, he gave them the power to become. You're becoming, I'm becoming. The poor ignorant guy and gal out there that don't know it yet, they're just ready to become. And what will it take? It'll take receiving. And how do they receive? Well, they'll see him. They'll know. We'll tell them. Something will happen. I can't go on tonight, but I can help understand and and, and prove this contrast. For instance, there's all kinds of things you can know about God. Romans says that you can know about his essence, you can know about his nature. In the frame of God, that definition there of the supreme being, you can see him in the sunsets, you can see him in the sunrise, but you can't know him as Father. You know him as Father through Jesus. Then you begin to see him as Father in the sunrise, everywhere. But, but Jesus is the key. Um, I'll close with just a little thing, I, if I can find it. Yeah. Uh, so I was asking the Lord, Lord, if I keep preaching about this childness thing, the way I understand it right now, this was a couple days ago, if I do that, then the people that love me are going to roll their eyes and get bored silly. Because there's about eight or nine references to a child. And I can't just keep harping on these things forever. So what's the point? Now, now I wasn't saying that disrespectfully. Because I believe this is the most important revelation of Christian reality and life and God that I've ever had in my entire life. And I know I'm just scratching the surface on it. And I would give the rest of my life to be able to unpack it. But this is what the Lord said. He said, your key is not only seeing yourself and helping others to see themselves as my children, but also seeing me as your father. Because it is how Jesus knows me. And your opportunity is to know me with his knowing. And then he said, man, man knows all about me as God even much of the things that that I'm not. (laughs) I felt like he was laughing. My son gave you the knowledge of me as his father and as your father. That is what you are, helping my children to see. The ways and the places that your, quote, knowledge of me as God has crowded out knowing me as father and Abba and Papa and Daddy. To know me, your God, and I am your God, The only eternal God as Father is your eternal life. And I know, I I thought immediately about what Jesus said there at the beginning of of John chapter 17. 17. 17.1 starts with Father. Then it goes down and he says, this is eternal life that they would know you. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his Father. But then he goes, the only true God. So it's not a competition between fatherhood and godhood. Godhood is a philosophic theological statement that closely matches a definition like that. And it also begs us to come up with nearly meaningless theological axioms to describe it. And it causes us to sit at a distance in a student or a professor or a judge's chair and say, well, he's transcended, or he's not transcended, he's... uh, omniscient or he's omnipotent if there were ever words that meant nothing in the relationship of a child with his daddy those are the words but that's what we're tempted to reduce our relationship to God with and I love theology and those things have now all kinds of impact on my heart if I'm thinking about God as a father and relating to him as as the way Jesus was you know then Jesus can say, um, don't don't pray with vain repetitions because your Father already knows what you need before you ask. Pray this way. Our Father. I thought, I thought that the big revelation out of that for me about three weeks ago was that we didn't need to think of ourselves as just isolated individuals. But our Father, mine and Bev's, mine and Nancy's, mine and Richard's, mine and Jan's, that added a kind of strength and stability to this. When I got to the thing where, and when I got to the part where Jesus told Mary to go tell the disciples, "Your Father and My Father," that's not just me and Bev and Jen and Richard in this group; it's Jesus in this group. That is the magnitude and the importance of us understanding our childness as our most basic identity. It'll open the door to avoid the distraction that puts God out at a theological distance and embraces him as our Father. And that will never be over until possibly that very last thing. But then I can't imagine that he, he's going to easily surrender fatherhood because it's part of his heart from before creation. So. So thanks again to Paul. Who's up there, I think, yeah, uh, for, for giving us some examples of contemplation. And I just would commission all of us to spend some time identifying with Jesus and contemplating him who is God, our father. I think it'll change us, guys. I think it will change us. We do. So let me pray. Holy Spirit, one of the, Simple descriptions of your job, and I mean no disrespect speaking to the God of the universe by narrowing it down to a job, but it's, it's the commission that Jesus explained to us when he said that, uh, you were going to take what the Father has given to Jesus and announce it to us. And then Jesus, I, I have to believe he was smiling when he did this, says, Oh yeah, and by the way, Everything the Father has, he's given. That means that everything the Father has given Jesus, you are called and sent to announce to us. And so before we can apprehend that in any measure, we want to say thank you. Thank you for giving us all the love that the father has for Jesus, that he loves him with. Thank you for giving us all the authority and all the power, but not independent of a father's care, one who provides protection, who provides cover and purpose. Thank you for fathering us, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking up the role of the Father's fathering of us. Thank you for making Jesus live in our heart, Holy Spirit. Thank you for helping us have the confidence to engage in the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love and honor for the Father. And Lord, I'm talking way over my head. I I barely know the teeniest part of this, but I know it's real. I know you're revealing it. And I know it's the answer to a lot of the lostness and the anger and the the, brokenness in the lives of people. And I know if we can ever get our gospel crafted in such a way and begin to speak it and share it in such a way that we don't distract the people by making them inventory their sin or something like that. But we just speak to them in a way that that's inner voice, your inner voice, Holy Spirit, can bear witness and say, Abba. Cry Abba. Cry Abba. Just just speak it out. Cry Daddy. So Lord, the best that we can offer right now is to believe and to receive. The best that we can offer right now is to contemplate this, to think about it as we go from here tonight. And I just believe, Father, and I pray for every person in this room and every person on Zoom. And then, one generation beyond that, I pray for every person that we have a conversation with this week about this concept. About the love and life and relationship of Jesus being given to us and us being drawn into it. And now our job is to understand or live it out or experience it or something. I just pray that your witness, your amen will be on that as we contemplate it. Think about it. I pray, Father, that it find a way into the practical areas of our life. Areas of prayer, intercession, warfare, standing, witnessing, giving, praying for the sick. It is the root of everything. Help us to engage it. In Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen.